Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I was asked if I would speak about relationships today. And so I want to do that. I want to talk about relationships. And uh, just before I do, I came across some things I I wanted to share with you. Um, It caused me to, uh, it put a smile on my face. Uh, Marriage uh, is like a deck of cards. You start out with two hearts and a diamond, and you end up with two clubs and a spade. (laughs) Marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right, and the other one is usually the husband. (laughs) I'm reading this in the first person, but this did not happen to my wife and I, but this is how the story goes. When our lawnmower broke, and wouldn't run, my wife kept hinting to me that I should get it fixed. But somehow I always had something else to take care of, first the truck, the car, answering an email, fishing, always something more important to me. Finally, she thought of a clever way to make her point. When I arrived home one day, I found her seated in the tall grass, busily snipping away with a tiny pair of sewing scissors. I watched silently for a short time, then went into the house. I was only there for a few minutes. When I came out again, I handed her a toothbrush. When you finish cutting the grass, I said, you might as well sweep the driveway. The doctors say I will walk again. I will always have a limp, but I will walk again. Marriage over the years. In the first year of marriage, the man speaks and the woman listens. In the second year of marriage, the woman speaks and the man listens. In the third year of marriage, they both speak and the neighbors listen. (laughs) After a lengthy quarrel, Mark said to his wife, if there's anyone here named Mark, it was not that Mark, okay? This is just... After a lengthy quarrel, Mark said to his wife, you know, I was a fool when I married you. And she replied, yes, Mark, but I was in love and didn't notice it. (laughs) And a little boy came to his dad. He said, dad, is it true that in ancient China, a man doesn't even know his wife until he marries? His dad said, that happens everywhere, everywhere. (laughs) So last week, uh, Pastor Gabe began uh, his message by sharing with you uh, that his message was going to be kind of like one of his visits to his chiropractor, uh, Dr. Tina Terrio, who is an amazing chiropractor, by the way. But he said, it's going to be kind of like that, where you go and you get adjusted. Everything seems to be okay for a while, but then you get a little stiff. Things don't move as easily as they ought to, and, and you need an adjustment. And so today, I want to continue on bringing you good news from the Word of God that will help adjust you and I 
from the concept of the world around us, their thoughts and their concept of marriage and what makes marriage work. Because God, God is the one who created marriage. And God has a very definite idea about how it works and how it works best. And all around us, we're surrounded. We don't even have to ask for it or look for it. It's everywhere. It's, in, it's on the TV. It's on the radio. It's in the movies. It's, there, there are songs. There are just all kinds of things around us that are pumping into our heart and our mind the value system of the world. And, and it's important that we get readjusted to God's word and to God's plan. And so as we begin today, uh, I, I am going to talk about marriage, but I want to back up a little bit and I want to start out talking about singleness because everyone is single before they get married. It's a part of God's plan. It's a part of his design that we are single before we get married. I love talking to kids that are between the ages of Oh, seven and 11. And usually when I have the opportunity to meet them, I'll ask them, you know, what's your name? And they'll tell me and, and I'll say, what school do you go to? And they'll tell me and I say, what's your teacher's name? And they'll tell me and I ask them what their favorite uh, subject is in school and they'll tell me and I ask them how old they are and they'll tell me. And then I say, are you married? And they, they lean back and their eyes get real big and they start laughing and they say, no, silly. No, I'm not married because they intuitively, instinctively know they've got some growing up to do before they get married. I can't even take care of myself yet. Why would I try to get married and take care of someone else? And that is a very, that's a very, very wise train of thought right there, shown in the hearts and minds of children. And so I, I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 2, and we're just going to stay in Genesis chapter 2 today, two portions of scripture from verse 15 to verse 18, and then uh, when we begin to talk about marriage, we're going to look at the last two verses of this, uh, of this chapter. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So if we're not careful, sometimes we just read through portions of Scripture and, and we sort of hurry along because uh, you know, we've got to get to work or we've got things to do and places to go. And, and we don't pause and give the Holy Spirit time to speak to our hearts. And as I was preparing and praying and looking at this scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit just spoke some things to my heart. Many times as we read through this, we think, you know, there's, there's God. God created Adam and formed him out of the dust of the earth. And then the Lord breathed on Adam the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. And then we pick up here in verse 15, the Lord God took Adam and put him in the garden. And we think, well, there's Adam. He's just all by himself. He's got nothing. He's just there in the garden. And I want to tell you, I, I just want to point out to you some things that Adam had in the garden. These are things that Adam had. Adam had, number one, the presence of God. He knew God. He talked with God. He communed with God. He loved the presence of God. God, 
God was there speaking to him, directing him, giving him instructions. He loved the presence of God. And it was there in the presence of God where Adam eventually met his wife. And that's where every man should meet his wife, in the presence of God. Ladies, don't go out in the world and find some guy and try to drag him back into the presence of God. Find a man who loves the presence of God and is in the presence of God. The second thing that God gave Adam is this. It says, it says that the Lord put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it. God gave Adam his presence and gave him a job before he gave him a wife. That's real good preaching right there. I'm just telling you. <laughs> gave him his presence and gave him a job and told him that he was to work there in the garden. He gave that to Adam. And, and that is super, super important that that men understand how, how this dynamic works. There is an order to things. He loved the presence of God. God gave him a job, gave him work, and he specified what the work was. In some of the other translations here, it says, uh, I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says that he was to work it and to keep it. One of the other translations says that God commanded him to cultivate the garden to cultivate it. Now, many of you are gardeners here and you understand what that means, but I was curious. I didn't want to, I didn't want to miss, uh, I wanted to be sure I understood the meaning of that word correctly. And so I looked it up and it, it means this, to bring out the best of everything around you, to maximize, to bring to its fullest potential, to make everything fruitful. That's what it means to cultivate. And God gave this man a job. He was to work and he was to work at cultivating, cultivating everything around him. He made it better. He brought out the best. He maximized the potential of everything that was around him. And then the Lord told him that he was to keep the garden. Man was to keep the garden and he was, that means he was to guard it. He was to protect it. When God created man, God gave man a stronger bone structure. He gave him a bigger muscle mass and that was not so he could abuse the woman. It was so he could protect the woman. He was never to use his strength or his size to intimidate, manipulate, or abuse a woman that God was going to bring into his life. And here's the fifth thing that I see that Adam had when he was in the garden. He had the word of God. And when you begin reading here in, uh, uh, let's see here in, in verse 16, the Lord God commanded uh, the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man uh, to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Adam had God's word. God did not speak to Eve and tell her about the tree. God did not tell her, you can eat of everything, but this one tree, you stay away from that. God spoke to Adam and told Adam. So Adam had God's word and it was Adam's responsibility to, 
That was part of the cultivating that he was to do. He was to teach. He was to explain. He was to relate what God had spoken to him, what God had given him in his heart. And that was going to bring satisfaction and fulfillment. And that was just going to do all kinds of things. And this is what Adam had when he was in the garden before he had a wife. And I would say to you that this is an amazing picture of successful singleness. Successful singleness. The truth of the matter is that people should get married when they don't feel the need to get married. They should get married not because they're empty and they're trying to fill an emptiness in them. They should get married when they're so full and they've got a vision and they've got the word of God and the presence of God and they're cultivating things around them. They've got a vision and they're moving forward and God says, you know what? I need to bring somebody along that you can share all that with. Successfully single, here's here's a man Here's a man, he, he's full, he's not empty, he's busy, he's productive, he's not lacking, he's not needy, he doesn't need another person to complete him. Adam didn't even know he needed a wife. He didn't ask. He didn't, he, he didn't say, God, you know, all the animals here, but you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm all by myself, I'm feeling kind of lonely. He did not even know he needed a wife. It was God who said, it was God who looked at him and said, I need to get this brother to help her. I mean, he's, he's really taken off. Here's a man, he's got a vision, he's focused on it, he's moving forward. Genesis chapter two and verse 18 is very, very crucial. It starts off with this word, then, then, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then. That's an interesting word. It means something came first, then something came after. Then, it's sort of a transitional word, and it's extremely, extremely important. There is an order in the kingdom of God. There's an order to things in the kingdom of God. And you need to see that as we talk about marriage. There is an order, and we begin to see it here. There's an order to the kingdom because when things are not in order, they don't work. They stop working. And so things need to be put in order. That's why spending your money before you tithe on it is a bad idea. Come on, church. You thought I was just going to talk about marriage. This is about marriage. We're talking about getting things in order. This is why sex before marriage is a bad idea. Because it's too much, too soon. Uh, now he doesn't value you. Now he takes you for granted. He objectifies you. There is an order to things. The word of God says that we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise. My time with God is a whole lot better when I come into his presence saying, thank you, thank you. 
there's an order to things. I know there are things that I want to talk to you about. There's things that, that I need to, to, to have, I need to bring before you. There's some issues, but things just go a whole lot better. If I come and say, Lord, I just want to start off by thanking you for all that you've already done for me. I'm aware of it. I'm appreciative of it. I don't take it for granted. You have been better to me than I deserve. And I want to thank you, Lord. I want to thank you. There's some people in hospitals today and they're on respirators, but I am not. I've got breath in my lungs and you said, let everything that have breath praise the Lord. So God, I just want to stop and I want to thank you and I want to praise you because you have given me your mercy and your loving kindness. You've watched over my ways. Your, 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 your goodness comes behind me. Lord, you protect me from ambushes and I just want to thank you for your divine enabling. There is an order to things. And Genesis chapter two and verse 18 says, then, then the Lord God said, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. What man? Well, this man. This man right here, we, we've just read through the description. This is the man God's talking about. This man, it's not good for this man to be alone. This man is a man who loves and enjoys the presence of God. This man is a man who's working. This man is a man who's cultivating you. He's bringing, he's bringing you to your highest potential. This man is a man who's a protector. He's guarding and watching over you. You're physically and emotionally and spiritually. This man is a man who knows and loves the word of God. And God looks at this man and says, it's not good for this man to be alone. But if a man doesn't know or care or value the presence of God, if he doesn't have a job, if he's not cultivating you, if he's not protecting you, if he doesn't even care about the word of God, then it may be good for that man to be. You got it. You got it. And so that's where we start. And I just want to say this to you. I want to say that God is the one who created and designed marriage. He created man. He created woman, brought them together. And God is the one who designed marriage. And, and marriage was meant to be the safest, most secure place in the world for people to love and to be loved. That's how God designed it. That's not quite the way it's worked out, especially in our 21st century American culture. It's, it's become something that brings a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment. And, and so the things that I say to you that I'm about to say to you about God's plan for marriage, I want, you, I want to be clear and I want you to understand that there's great value if one person will obey these, these laws but it really, really works when two people obey these laws. It starts off by being careful about who we are joined to. Now, I, if you have not listened to last week's message, you need to pull it up and listen to it. Because that is a choice, a decision that should not be made all by yourself. That's a decision you need help with. I'll never forget, uh, we, let me say it like this. We need to be wise enough 
to not only listen to the things that people say, we need to be wise enough to listen to their silence. Have, I, I remember, uh, I remember uh, announcing an engagement uh, one time and when I announced that this couple had gotten engaged, the whole church exploded. Seven, 800 people just exploded. Praise God, thank you, Jesus, finally. What took them so long? Oh, everybody was so happy, so excited. There have been other times, it wasn't in a, in a congregational setting, but in a smaller group, when someone would say, did you hear so-and-so got, got engaged? Crickets. Nobody said anything. And the truth of the matter is that sometimes there will be people who love you so much they don't want to hurt you and they don't know what to say, so they just don't say anything. And, and as believers, we need to grow up and we need to realize this is the most important decision I will make in my life outside of deciding if I'm going to serve God or not. And we need all the help that we can get. We need to know that this person is, is the right one and there, there needs to be some confirmation. There needs to be some input from people who love us and care enough about us to tell us the truth no matter how much it hurts. Amen. So I'm preaching better than you're amen in right now, but I'm just going to keep on. Um, I am. I'm just going to keep on. So God is the one, God is the one who, who designed marriage. Marriage was not invented by lawyers. Aren't you thankful for that? It was not invented by Congress. It wasn't invented by a caveman. Marriage was God's idea and God knows how to make marriage work. And God has established an order so that marriage will work. And if we will obey God's laws for love and for marriage, then love will flourish and marriage will get better and better and stronger and stronger all through the years. What, this, this would not, let me just give you a hypothetical. This would not be an uncommon scenario that a couple falls in love, they get married and they're married for a month or you know, maybe two months and they have a big fight. And they have a great big fight and they, they go off to work and one of them might say to a coworker or a friend at work, yeah, you know, we had a big fight. And it would not be uncommon for a coworker or friend to make a statement, something like this. Well, the honeymoon's over. And what they're saying is, you have experienced the very best of what marriage has to offer. It came, you bought the t-shirt and now it's over. So fasten your seatbelt and get ready to be miserable for the next 60 years like the rest of us. <laughs> God designed and created marriage to be good. And not just to be a flash in the pan for the first two months of your life together, but to grow stronger and better and more passionate and for, for you and your spouse to become more and more one. And so, you know, some people say if they see a couple, that's, uh, it's, it's obvious that they're happy. It's obvious that things are going well. You might look at somebody like my friends, uh, Judy and Gary Buchanan, and people look at them and say, boy, they got lucky. Well, let me tell you something. If you obey God's laws for love and marriage, luck has nothing to do with it. Luck has nothing to do with it. You are guaranteed 100% 
success if you will obey God's laws for love and marriage. And if you look at the last two verses of Genesis chapter 2, I want to talk to you a little bit about these laws. Here, here they are right here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here's, here's the first law. It's, it's in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The first law of love and marriage is this. It's the law of priority. Now, I'm presupposing for, for what I'm about to say that everyone in here has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the priority relationship in our lives. But presupposing that, I want to say to you that marriage... God's plan for marriage is that marriage becomes the priority human relationship in our life. If you are married, that becomes the primary human relationship in your life. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people when they get married, they just add another person to their life. And they've already got priorities. They've got work and they've got family and they've got all kinds of things going on. And they just add another person to their life. But the meaning of this is not that we just add someone else to our life, but that we reprioritize our life. And we reprioritize, and, and now the marriage relationship is more important. It is priority over my relationship with my own parents. It's the priority over my relationship with my in-laws. My marriage is priority over my brothers, my sisters, my grandparents, my siblings, you know, all, all of that. It is priority over our own children. Let me say that again. The marriage is priority even over our own children. It's priority over my friends, my hobbies, my work. It is the priority relationship in my life. And, and so it needs, to be, it needs to be that way. Now, a lot of men, the way men think many times is more linear. And, and we have checklists, you know, get a job, get promoted, uh, you know, uh, find, find the girl, get married, uh, uh, you know, get a, get a, get a new truck, get a house. And, and we check, we, we just check those things off and marriage is not an accomplishment that we check off, but it becomes the priority that we're committed to developing and working on for the rest of our life. So, so let me, let me say it to you like this when, because everybody understands work takes a, a number of hours every day and there are other, other, uh, uh, responsibilities that we have. And we're, you know, we, we want to take care of those things. But when I say that marriage is the primary relationship, the priority relationship, let me say it like this. If anybody in your life is feeling like they're not getting the best of you, they're not getting, you know, they're not getting what they need from you, the very best of you, it should never be your spouse. It should never be your spouse. You need to reprioritize everything else so that you can have a marriage that will be happy and healthy and strong and last for a lifetime, for a lifetime. When I was, when I was a junior in high school, I had the loudest, most awesome motorcycle ever. It, it was amazing. When it was time for me to sell it, 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 was a, it was a Honda 350 Scrambler. It had the pipes that came up on the side 
and, and there, was some, there was some rust and corrosion where the muffler was. The muffler was back there, and so I just I cut the muffler off. And some of you have seen those little VW tailpipes that sort of flare out. They fit just right on, on those tailpipes. I'd crank that thing up. Man, they could hear me coming from a mile away. When, I, when it came time for me to sell that bike, a kid came over, and he's looking at it, and, and uh, he, he wasn't real sure. And uh, I cranked it up, and when I cranked it up, that's boom, 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 boom. his eyes got, I knew right then, it's sold. It's sold. I should have asked a little more for it. He could feel it. But not long after I had that bike, it needed a ring job. And my dad said, well, you, you don't have money to take it to a shop, you do it. And so he gave me a little bit of instruction, but basically I did it all by myself. Never done anything like that before. I ended up with some leftover bolts. It would start and it would run, but it wasn't quite like it was before. And so I tore it all apart again and I got some plans. I got some schematics, some blueprints, and I put it all back together. And I just want to say to you, if you want your motorcycle or your marriage to start when it needs to start and to be as powerful as it needs to be and to be as reliable and to give you the thrill that you need then you need to build it according to the blueprint, the schematic, the plan that God has given us in his word. So one of the things, one of the things about making your, your marriage the priority relationship is this. Everybody knows that relationships live or die because of communication. And so communication is super, super important. You're your communication with your spouse must be a priority. You must, that must be a priority in your life. And when I talk about communication, uh, I want you to understand every married couple gets into a groove where they talk, but they're not really communicating. You know, we just say things, good morning, how you doing? You sleep good. Yeah. What's for, what's for supper tonight? Who's picking up the kids? And you know, those kinds of things that we do just to function. But, but I'm talking about talking. I'm talking about communicating. I'm talking about doing it in intentionally, which means that you set aside time. If you need to put it on the calendar, do it. But you set aside time, maybe 20, 30 minutes to start off. And you talk, you open up, how are you doing? How are you really doing? And hopefully as you begin to talk about your dreams, your goals, your desires, your children, your sex life, your, I mean, everything, you talk about all of those things as you talk, it becomes better. You grow in that skill. And it's also a time for you to learn the skill of becoming an active listener. Where you give your spouse one of the greatest acts of love that you can give, which is your complete and total attention while they're talking to you. You know how we all are. We multitask. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Okay, babe. What time, what time are we going? Right. Uh-huh. Oh, let me, hang on just a minute. Let me, and we've got the TV going over here and we've got whatever, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got all that going and we think that we can, there are some people, if they came into your life, you'd drop everything and you would give them your complete and total attention. I don't, I don't know about this campus, but I think almost everybody in Louisiana considers you, we're kind of all part of Cincinnati South, 
right now, right? Joe Burrow, right? Yeah. If Joe Burrow walked into your, into your house, do you think you would just drop everything for a little while and talk to him about his plan? You know, he's already back on the grind, back on the grind, getting ready for Super Bowl next year. It took two weeks off to rest. He's back at it. There, and, and so there's, there's just literally no one who deserves your attention. When my wife and I got married, it was before the days of cell phones and computers and all that. And we got our news through the newspaper. And you could get some from the TV. But basically the newspaper. My morning routine was get up, read my Bible and pray. And then before I would leave, I would have the newspaper. And I'd sit at the table and drink my coffee and eat a little bit of breakfast. And I would, I would check on the news. And I remember we'd not been married very long at all. Uh, just months. And I'm reading the paper and drinking my coffee. My wife is sitting at the table. She walked in and sat down and she's talking to me. And she's talking and I'm giving her grunts and, you know, uh uh-huh and uh, one word answers. And as she's talking to me and I'm reading the paper thinking, I'm I'm good at this. I'm, I'm multitasking. Look at me. I see these four fingers come over the top of my newspaper. And it slowly comes down. I see a little blonde hair and then I see these piercing blue eyes and this beautiful face. And she says, could you just look me in the eye when I talk to you? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. I folded up that paper. I made a great start. I've not always, always followed through on that, but I do my best to give my wife my full attention. And there's still times when she has to say, do you hear what I'm saying? Are you listening to Because men are like that. We're just sort of dumb, you know, but that is, that is the entirety of my marriage counseling to men. Don't be dumb. That's it. You're good. Go, go in peace. Be blessed. So, so your marriage must be the priority relationship in your life. It is super important that you prioritize uh, your communication and that you have time when you communicate on purpose. The more you talk, the easier it gets to talk, the easier it is to express yourself. And sometimes you need to ask, sometimes you need to repeat back to each other, "What, what did I just say to you? And they say it back and it's like, that's not at all what I said. You, well, yeah, but I thought that's what you meant. Yeah, but that's not what I said. Right now I'm saying exactly what I mean. So listen again. And we, we grow in our ability. And here's, here's an added benefit. A lot of times we live our lives and we should not, as, just as wise people, but especially as Christians, we should not live our lives just making emotional decisions. Yeah, that's not good. That is just not good. But we haven't, we haven't talked about it. A plan hasn't been made and something happens and it seems like a small but manageable crisis and, and our emotions get involved and we make a decision right then and right then. Most of the time, it's not the best decision that could have been made. As you prioritize talking with one another, communicating with one another, you would be surprised how God will enter into that and you will talk about things and preemptively discuss things that need to be discussed before it happens so that it doesn't take you by surprise and you're not making an emotional decision, but your life is, is staying within the boundaries of the, the, the pathway of righteousness and you are 
you are growing in your relationships. So here's, here's the next law. I need to move on uh, quickly here. The next law, the second law is this, the law of pursuit. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Holding fast is not one and done. Holding fast is something we grow in. It's a continual process. In, in the marriage vows, uh, more than likely, all of you who are married, you will remember there was a point in time when the minister would say, do you, and they'd call your name, do you take this woman to become your wife? And then he'd say to the woman, do you take this man to become your husband? And that's a very interesting, it, actually, it's an on-purpose word, to become, to become because you don't have it all together. You need to become what you've, what, what you've just become. You need to grow in becoming. It's like getting your license to drive. You're 16 years old. You didn't one day, you didn't have a license. And the next day you got a license and you can drive, but it doesn't mean that you know everything about driving in Houston traffic at rush hour. It doesn't mean you know how to drive through snow or you know, a waterfall that we call rain here in South Louisiana. It doesn't mean that you know how fast you should go if there's nobody else on the highway, but a cane truck has just splattered the road with mud and it's foggy and it's, so you grow in your ability to handle all those. You're, you are a driver. You got a license. You are a driver, but you've got to grow in becoming a better and better driver, a wiser. And it's like that with becoming a husband and becoming a wife. And I, I just want to tell you, we, this, this part about, about this law of pursuit that I'm going to pursue my spouse, what it, is we, we have been so inundated with the lie that Hollywood has, has drilled into our, our culture. And that lie is that you don't need to work at marriage. If you're working at marriage, you probably married the wrong person. It's all about chemistry. And you look at all the movies and you look at all the, you know, you had me at hello and all, all of that, you know, it's just, it's all chemistry. Thank God for chemistry. It exists. It's a real thing, but that's not what you build a life on. That's not what you build a marriage on. And so Hollywood tells you it's all about that. And if you have to work at it, then something's wrong. The, the magic's gone, you need to move on, get, find some more chemistry, but that's not at all. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that even though there was strong chemistry at the beginning of your, your marriage relationship, and you might think it, there, it was, there was no work to it at all, we just were in love. We just were in love. I would say to you, if you just stop and think about it, there's probably a lot of work involved the first time you guys met up on purpose for your first date. You probably were very careful about what you pulled out of your closet to wear. You were very careful that it was clean. You were very careful that it didn't smell like it had been in the dirty clothes hamper for three weeks. <laughs> you were very careful about your hair. You brushed your teeth. You put on deodorant. Your car was clean. You probably vacuumed out the inside. You opened doors, you pulled out a chair. That's all work. That's all work. And, and what I'm saying is that if we are going to pursue our spouse, we've got to keep doing those things. You don't take one another for granted and keep the spark alive. You've got to work at this thing. You pursue your spouse. And what that means is that I'm looking at my spouse and I'm figuring out what their needs are and I'm doing everything I can to meet their needs before they ask. 
My wife is from Minnesota. She grew up in the land of 30 below zero in the winter. You know what that means? That means they could have a heat wave and the temperature rise 30 degrees and it'd still be zero. That's what that means. She does not like the cold. She does not like the wet, cold, damp weather. And so it means a lot to her when I know she's got to go someplace and it's nasty and it's cold. If I go out and start the car, turn the heater on, it's all warmed up before she can get out there. I'll tell you, she's much better at this than I am. I'll just be honest with you. We, we had, I had some errands to run the other day, busy day, some appointments and some errands. I needed to return some stuff and it wasn't in my car. It was in her car. So I took her car, did all that. And then we met up for a final appointment that we were having with some folks and, and we traded cars and I was just kind of worn out. It was the end of a long day and I got in my car and there in the cup holder, an angel had visited my car. And there in the cup holder was a brand new package of Reese's chocolate cups. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. She was, she was pursuing me. <laughs> I was just ready to slow down and let her catch me. The law of pursuit. Let me, just, let me just move on here. The third law is this. We find it in, in uh, the same verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the law of partnership. The law of partnership. And what that basically means is no one is going to dominate this marriage. We are equal partners. That's scripture. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are equal partners in this marriage. So nobody's going to dominate this marriage, not by size, not by volume, not because I can slam a door harder than you, not, we're, not because I control uh, the finances or I control the sex. Or it, Nobody is going to dominate this marriage. We are equal partners in this marriage marriage. But this is an amazing thing. Even though we are equal partners, anything with two heads is a monster. And so God has created a lane for men and a lane for women to run in. And if we will follow in our lane, and again, for further detail, I would refer you back to last week's message. You need to listen to that more than once. You need to listen to the plan of God as your pastor laid it out. So God gives us these roles. And for the man, God says to the man, you are the head. You're the head, you're the leader. That is the role that God gives the man. Leader means that you are the initiator. That means that you are to be the first one to say to your spouse, there will never be a time when we wake up on a Sunday morning, look at each other and say, what do you wanna to do today? There will never be a time when that will happen because we're believers and we're gonna be in church on Sunday morning. That's what we're gonna do. So that's a decision that we just make and we're gonna to hold to that decision. And so he, the, the man is to be the one to, to lead, to initiate. He's to be the first one to say, we're going to honor God with the tithe. That's what we're going to do. We need God's blessing. The man should be the first one to take his wife's hand and say, baby, we need to pray about this situation. 
You've looked at it. I've looked at it. We need God's help. And God has promised he will help us. Let's pray together and ask God to come and be in the middle of this. Now, that is, that is the role that God has given man to be the head, to be the, the leader, to be the initiator. And God has a role for the wife. And the, the woman is called the helper the helper. Now, it's very, very unfortunate that, that many people have just, you know, thought that that was a term of disrespect, a term that just really, you know, really was not a good thing to call a woman. It's not like a carpenter's helper, somebody who's not as qualified, not as knowledgeable, can't do as good a job, you know. It, that's not at all what it means. Helper in this sense means that, uh, that she is eminently qualified, totally capable. It's like the senior vice president of Boeing or Exxon or Microsoft. But because anything with two heads is a monster, God has laid this out and and it's more like a chain of command. We have the head, we have the president and the vice president. We have the head and we have the helper. And before you think I'm not telling you the truth about this helper thing and this, the, the title that God has given women. Let me just tell you this, that the role that God uses most often in the Bible to describe himself is helper. David said, the Lord is my helper. Jesus said it to his disciples, I'm going away, but don't be fearful. I'm going to send the helper. This is the term that God uses to describe himself. So, so here's, here is a plan that God has put in place. Man gets to have on his desk the little plaque that says, the buck stops here. The president does not have to know everything. Everybody knows he doesn't know everything. He doesn't have to know everything. The president of a company, the president of a corporation, the president of anything. He has to know where to get the answers. And if he has a capable and qualified vice presidential staff, he'd be a fool to not inquire, to not say, listen, let's look at this. Tell me what you think. Let's, let's, you know, we're going to go to the word of God. We're going to pray and we're going to ask God for his help. If anybody comes and asks you who's the head of your home, let me just tell you right now, the right answer is Jesus. But then under Jesus, the man's called to be the head and the woman is called to be the helper. And the man has that final authority. He gets a little more authority in the marriage. But God balances that out by giving the woman a little more influence. And all the ladies said, amen. Yes. And so it all works together. Let me just, let me just close with this. The last law is the law of purity. So verse 24 and then verse 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's not just talking about physical nakedness, that they did not have jeans and a, and a, you know, a, a shirt or anything like that. It, it means there was, there was emotional transparency. It means there were no secrets. It means that they were open and honest with each other about everything. Now, when we talk about the law of purity, obviously we're talking about sexual purity. We, our culture has become a cesspool and, and, and God has called us as his children to live apart from that, to not follow the ways of the world, but we are to live in sexual purity, which means that, that, you know, we're not going to cross those lines. Let me just tell you right now, just in case anybody doesn't know, and you're wondering, pornography will never bless your life. Pornography is not going to help your marriage. 
And, and not only should we not be involved in physical extramarital relationships or affairs, we should not be involved in inappropriate emotional entanglements with people that we've never physically touched before, but we open up and tell them things that we don't tell our spouse. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And if it's going on, it needs to stop. And you can pull out your phone right now and send them a text and say, it's over. We're through. And you know, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very polite. I'm trying to get you out of a trap that wants to destroy you, destroy your marriage. And you don't play nice with the devil. You put your foot down. I heard somebody, they were talking about an option that someone had given them. And their response was, oh man, I squashed that like a bug. And I just want to tell you, sometimes the devil comes and he presents options to you. And instead of playing around and trying to be polite and nice, you need to squash it like a bug in the name of Jesus. Squash it like a bug. So, so the law of purity also means I will not allow my marriage to be defiled with a lie. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not going to just tell you part of the story and not tell you all of it. I'm not going to exaggerate. I'm not going to pretend like I told you and then you forgot those important things. That, no, we're not going to play any of those games. I will not allow my marriage to be defiled with a lie. And here's the final thing. I will not allow my marriage to be defiled with unresolved conflict. We're not going to pretend it wasn't said. We're not going to pretend it didn't happen. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to just forget about it and hope it'll go away. We're going to resolve conflict. We're going to talk about it. And we might not get it all resolved in one talk. It might take a week or maybe longer. Who knows? But God is going to help us because we're going to obey his word. And he can bless when I'm obeying his word. I can invite him to come and give us help and wisdom. And he said, if we just ask, he would give it to us. He would give it to us. And so, so when it comes to resolving conflict, there's two, two things that I want to say to you that are important. You need to know the difference between criticizing and complaining. Criticizing, it's all about you. Yesterday, you said something to me, and, and I know why you said it. You're just small-minded, and you're mean, and you've always been that way, and I don't even know if I like you anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to divorce.com, and I filled out all the blanks, and unless you apologize to me and make me feel like you really mean it, I'm going to go back as soon as we're through talking, and I'm going to push the inner, the inner button right there. And it's all, it's all about you. You're not understanding, you're not caring, you're hard-headed, you're stubborn. You're, it's all about you. Complaining, on the other hand, is all about me. Hey, sweetheart, you said something yesterday morning, and this is how it made me feel. And I don't even know if that's how you intended it, but it's how it made me feel. And can we just, can we get together and talk about that? Could you process that with me? Because I don't, I don't like feeling this way. I don't want to feel like this. Now, when somebody opens up their heart and becomes vulnerable to you, in that way, the last thing you want to do is to respond harshly and say something like, well, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my whole life. I didn't mean that. You know I didn't mean You are going to crush someone's heart and it's going to be harder to get that door open again. So you want to be tender. You want to take care of that. You want to steward that well. 
and you want to open up and you want to talk and you want to bring resolution. Now, many of you know that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter five, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And I've heard many, many people say, that means that we got to resolve all the conflict before we go to bed at night. Can I just tell you, everybody in here who's been married for more than about, I don't know, two months, you know that there are conflicts that are going to come. You're not going to get it resolved before the sun comes up in the morning. It's just not, but that's not what the Bible doesn't say. You have to resolve the conflict before you go to bed at night. It says, don't go to bed angry. That's what it says. Don't go to bed angry. Now you can do that. You can make a choice. I'm putting my anger away right now. And men, because you are the leader and the initiator, if you have one of those evenings like that, there comes a point where you and your spouse need to go to bed at night. You need to be the first one because you're the initiator and the leader to take your wife and pull her in for a big hug and say, sweetheart, I just want to tell you, I love you that I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this marriage. I am never leaving. Never, never. We're going to pray. God's going to help us. This, we're going to work this thing out. I know we don't have it resolved right now, but we're, we're not going to pretend that, that this thing is just going to disappear like the fog. You know, when the sun comes up, we're going to deal with this. We're going to talk about it and God is going to to help us. Now I tell everybody when I do marriage counseling, I tell them there, there are a couple of things that you need to take out of your vocabulary. Number one is the word divorce. If you are a believer, it's not an option. It's not an option, not, not an, except in a couple of extreme situations, but for the most part, it's just not an option. Now, if you if things really get bad, maybe you can murder them and tell God, you don't know what happened to them. But divorce is not an option. Take that. Don't threaten one another with that. Don't. That, that's not a light thing to play with. And here's the second thing. Nobody sleeps on the couch. Nobody. You got a bed. Get in your bed. If you don't feel like looking at each other, that's fine. Look at the wall. But get in the same bed. And who knows what will happen. Just say it. You might wake up in the morning and everything will be all better. (laughs) Jesus spoke to a church in the book of Revelation chapter two. It was a church that had gotten to a place, started off with fire and passion and excitement. And they got into a place where they were still going through the motions. They were were doing a lot of things. But Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, "You've, you've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. And he tells them how to fix it. Number one, remember from where you fell. Remember what it was like. Remember what it was like. Number two, he says, repent. Now, we all understand that repent is not like confession. Confession is just saying, I did it. Repentance goes a little further. Repentance says, I did it, and I don't ever want to do it again. I'm sorry, but I'm so sorry that I'm never going to do that again. I was going this direction. And if I repent, it means I turn around. I'm going this direction, which presupposes that I understand that the direction I was going in is the wrong direction. So I'm going to change that direction and go in a different direction. That's what repentance is. And then he says this, he says, do the first works again. Now, what's really interesting is that he doesn't tell this church in order to get back their passion and their zeal and their excitement, the thrill that we all had the day after we gave our heart to the Lord Jesus. 
He doesn't say anything about getting back the feelings. He gives them some practical things to do. Remember what it was like, repent, and do the things you did at the beginning. And you know what's amazing is that those instructions not only work for a church that's lost its passion and has left its first love, that is how marriages are restored. When marriages need to be healed, we need to remember what it was like. We need to remember when they took our breath away. We need to remember when we would talk and talk and talk on the phone until the battery died and our ears got red and sweated because we couldn't stand the thought of ending the conversation. We need to remember that. And then we need to repent, which means I need to quit being so busy about all these other things and ignoring my spouse, belittling them, criticizing them, not being truthful. I, I, need, I need to repent of all that and change the direction I've been going and do the things I did at the beginning. There was a man, there was a man whose marriage was in trouble. He was a very ordinary man, just nothing, nothing extraordinary about him. And things were not going well in his marriage and he didn't know what to do. And he ended up losing his marriage. He was divorced. About six months after his divorce, a friend saw him in a store. And when he first saw him, didn't even recognize him. The guy had lost about 30 pounds. He bought some new clothes got his hair fixed up, came up to him, says, man, so what happened to you? He says, well, he says, you know, my marriage didn't work out. Me and the missus, you know, we got divorced and I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone. I figure I might as well clean up my act so I can get a new wife. It just makes you wonder, you know, if you'd put that much effort into, maybe you wouldn't, but that's how sheep are. And that's why we need God's word. And that's why we need to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge him. And he, the word says that if I submit to his ways, that he will make my paths straight, which means I'm not gonna be going in circles anymore. If I will acknowledge him in all my ways, submit to him, he will make my paths straight. And again, the wrong thing to do is to try. If you realize that, you know, we're in a dry spot, we've hit a rough patch, try to get the feelings back. Let's go out for a real expensive meal. Let's take a vacation. Those things are all fine, you know. Buy her flowers, buy her a card, buy her a diamond, you know, whatever. That's the, the wrong path is, is trying to recreate feelings. The right path is to do the things you did at the beginning value that person, pursue that person, make them a priority. You never would, you didn't even know these laws, but you never would have even gotten married if one of you didn't put the other any higher than a three or four on your priority list. You both had each other at number one. That's what brought you together. So I, I, I want to close um, by praying for every marriage that is represented here in this room. Would that be okay? That'd be all right. So this is what I'd like to do. If, if you are in this room today and if you are married, I'd like for you to stand, whether your spouse is with you or not. I'd like to just ask you to stand. And, and I just want to pray. If you're with your spouse, just take them by the hand. 
And I just, I would like to pray for God's blessing. I'd like to pray for God's grace, God's divine enabling to rest on you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just come to you right now in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And I thank you for every married person in this room. I thank you, Lord, that our marriages, you said it in your word, that we are to demonstrate the truth of how Christ loves the church through our marriages. And God, I pray, I pray for your touch, for your grace, for your anointing on every man, every husband in this room. I pray, God, that every man would pursue you and become the man of God you have called him to be. I pray that that every husband in this room would become the husband that his wife needs and the father that his children need. Lord, we need you. We need you to deal with our selfishness, deal with our self-centeredness, deal with our, our, our roughness and gruffness. Lord, make us tender again. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be understanding. Help us to be merciful. Help us to be kind. Help us to be careful the tone of our voice when we speak to our spouse, that we're not talking down to them or treating them as though they, they just don't know as much as we know. They're just a little, a little ignorant. God, help us to value them as the treasure that your word says they are to us. Father, I pray for every, every woman in this room, Lord, that you would help every woman to become the woman of God that you've called her to be. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you touch every man and every woman, that you would heal the hurts in their heart. God, that you would heal the wounds. Lord, some of them that, that were incurred before they ever got married. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that you'd speak peace and that you would heal all of those wounds, whether they were intentional or not that you would heal them and make them whole. I thank you, God, for helping every woman to be the woman of God you've called her to be. Help her to be the wife that her husband needs and the mother that her children need. I pray, God, that you would accomplish this as we ask it in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Now, I'd like to ask you, if you would, just remain standing for a minute. And I want to ask everyone else who's in the room, just stand with us so that we're all standing together. If you could just all stand right now. And I just want to say this. There's a huge, huge difference. There's a huge difference between being godly and being religious. And our, our community is very, very familiar with what it means to be religious. It's a very different thing to be godly. Being a godly husband being a godly wife, godly spouse begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that begins when we pray and when we just do exactly the instructions that I shared with you from, from Revelation, that I repent, that I turn around, that I, that I go in another direction, that I ask Jesus to forgive me and, and I surrender my life to his lordship. The Bible gives us a very, a very clear plan of, of how we are to approach God when we decide, I want to follow God. I want to be a part of his family. I want his strength, his power in my life. I want his, his help to forgive, to love, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be kind. I need God's help so that I can be the man, the woman that God has called me to be. And, and what, what happens is this, we need to be honest with God and with ourselves. We need to just be able to say to God, God, 
I've said some things I shouldn't have said. I've done some things I shouldn't have done. I've gone some places I shouldn't have gone. God, I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sins. The Bible says that the second thing I need to do is I need to believe. I need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he went to the cross in my place and in your place, that he rose from the dead on the third day. And I need to confess. That means I need to say with my mouth, I'm going to follow Jesus. From this point on, I'm going to surrender my life to him. I'm going to live for him. And I'm going to surrender my life to his lordship. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to bring everything to a close here right now. But if you're here today and you say, Pastor Paul, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to know what it is to be born again. Would you just raise your hand very quickly? I just want to see who I'm praying. I see right back here. There's a hand. Here's another hand. Here's, here's another. Here's, there's right back here. Here's some. Anyone else? Real quickly. Just lift your hand. This is between you and God. This is not about joining a church. This is about a relationship that you begin by following the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I want to do. I want to lead you in a prayer. And I want to ask everyone to join with us in this prayer. Let's all pray it together. Some of you for the first time and some of you as you remember the first time that you prayed it. Would you just repeat with me right now as we go to the Lord in prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, my guilt, and you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. And I declare that God is my Father, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit is my helper. Heaven is my home. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.